Hi everybody, Michael Davis here. Welcome to Bone to Pick. And I'm absolutely honored to uh, have an opportunity to sit down with our featured artist for the month of July, the great Bob Milliken. Uh, Bob has been one of the most important trumpet players on the New York scene for the past 50 years. Everything from Broadway shows to studio work and everything in between. Uh, he arrived at, in New York at the age of 18 and immediately started working on the scene. Um, he has been lead trumpet for a who's who of the entertainment industry, including uh, Barbara Streisand, Tony Bennett, Sammy Davis Jr., Ella Fitzgerald, Diana Ross, uh, Nancy Wilson, just to name a few. Uh, his jazz credits include the great Chick Corea. He played on one of my favorite records of Chick's, The Leprechaun. Uh, Gil Evans, Clark Terry, Grover Washington Jr., uh, Lyle Mays, Jerry Mulligan, a long association with the great Louis Belson, and of course, an, uh, an equally long association with the great Bob Menser. Uh, he was a member of the renowned American Jazz Orchestra led by John Lewis. Uh, he's worked extensively with Quincy Jones. And for over 20 years, he was the lead trumpet player on the Tony Awards, as well as the Kennedy Center Honors Show down in Washington, D.C. And I have to say, he's uh, not only for myself, but I think for the entire brass community here in New York, he's one of the most popular and favorite people to see uh, on any job because of obviously, obviously because of the playing is so spectacular. But an incredible spirit and uh, and he brings so much to the table a lot of times there's a lot of tension and stress when you're trying to get a recording done and bob has just an amazing spirit about him and a way of uh bringing things uh down to an even keel and making everybody feel comfortable so uh without further ado uh bob thank you so much for uh taking time out of your schedule and joining us today on, on bone to pick well thank you actually it's an honor to to be asked to do this because uh, i know there's a long line of some really phenomenal uh, musicians who've done this. And so it's just, it, it, I would not attempt to put myself in their category, but it's nice to be asked and I appreciate the honor. Wow, thank you, Bob, it's very nice to say, and you are certainly in the, that category without wow. question. Let's jump in uh, on your early years. You grew up in uh, McCordsville, Indiana on a farm. Uh, and uh, maybe you could just talk about your early memories and what made you gravitate to music and the trumpet. Well, uh, my father took me to uh, a band rehearsal. He played in this band. It was called the Sahara Grotto Band. It was like a some kind of a sonic offshoot, and they uh, did concerts and things. So he took me there, and uh, uh, I remember sitting back with the trumpets and watching these guys. They looked like they were like eighty years old. They were probably younger than I am now, <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, this is exciting. The sound of sitting inside that thing, and so he he bought me an old. Uh, Con cornet from one of those guys. I was only in the second grade, Christmas, uh, my second grade. And uh, the rest, uh, you know, as they say, <laughs> you know, so as a kid, you know, you kind of figure out as you go along things you have success in and, and you know, like things that you want to do or fantasizing doing and, and you do them and you may, you may have some success at it, but you don't see a future in it, you know, like baseball or whatever, you know, those right, kind of things, right. literally, and you're having fun and all that. But when it, it, then, then when it uh, gets down to it, you realize that, you know, the thing that you're getting uh, the most compliments for as a kid and, and getting the most uh, feedback, uh, you figure like, hey, I'm, I'm going with this. This, is, <laughs> this seems to be working. Right, right. So that was the trumpet. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> 
That's a great point, though. I think all of us as, as musicians, you get that positive feedback. And it's like, yeah, yeah, let's, yeah. let's go in this direction. Well, just stay with and, this, then. This just seems to be working. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, what I find really interesting in, in kind of preparing for this interview, most of uh, the stuff I knew about you, but, uh, but right out of high school, you graduate from high school and you immediately go into a professional situation around the Warren Covington band. Well, what actually, was... uh, that's true. Uh, not, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but it, it, I, I did have a day gig for uh, a couple of weeks uh, working in this shoe department of this uh, sort of like a, it was called Zares or something like that, sort of like a Kmart. And, of course, I didn't last long there. I got fired pretty quick, you know, when they realized I was just hanging out at the coffee bar all the time, you know. But the thing is, my, my gripe was that I, there was three of us when I started at a gig, and it was just me when I, when I got fired, and I wasn't going to do the work of the other two people. So that was my introduction to the day gig life, and I said, I'm going to do this again. Yeah. So, well, maybe we just won't even count those two weeks as yeah. part of the and portfolio then. And then, and then, a, and then a guy uh, called me and said, listen, uh, he called like it was like, like a call you get in the middle of the night. But don't tell anybody. Uh, I got this uh, job that you might be interested. It was a carnival burlesque show. So uh, of course, at that point, I had nothing going on. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. I went and I auditioned, and uh, so I did a carnival burlesque show for a, a couple of months. And then I got my got this call thanks to my sister who was a singer, and she was always a real you know uh, champion of my uh, thing there, and. Um, she uh, got this guy to call me, Jim Edison, as you guys probably heard of in Indianapolis, and he was playing on Warren Cummins' band, but he had to leave. And so he got me the gig, and I, uh, I went out on the, and played on in, in that band, which had the great John Von Olin and a few other great players in there. And that, that was the beginning of uh, really sort of getting into passing that level, you know, from, from the Carnival Burlesque show, which actually was a great gig. I enjoyed it. Piano and trumpet, that was it. Oh, but wow. but the, uh, the band was really, uh, you know, the first act was like uh, Rosemary Clooney, and, you know, then we did the Smothers Brothers and all this. So here I am, 17 years old, and I'm just like, really, I can't believe this. This is happening. This is great. So Yeah, very cool. So then... What was it like joining Warren, Warren Covington's band? Who he was a great band leader and trombone yeah, player, was. and uh, he, he really and, was. He was a character, and he was, but he could play, and he he had some, you know featured numbers that he he was pretty amazing, and uh, there were some real characters on that band, <laughs> you know, as you know how bands can be. <laughs> then they had to, they had a lead trumpet player. I was a third trumpet. They had a lead trumpet player, and they had a second trumpet player, and they both came to the gig. Every night, with a brand new paper sack with a bottle of, you know, a fifth or whatever, full-size bottle of vodka. And that was, they'd drink that all night long. And then at the first one who finished, and this happened every night, they used to crack us all up. The first one who finished would always ask the other one for a drink. <laughs> and of course, there was a few expletives added in there when the guy would say no. <laughs> and that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Never share. <laughs> I've heard of that happening. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. That must have been quite an experience oh, at man, 17. Was, like, how cool it, is it? It was that? like, uh, it was incredible, all this stuff going down, you know. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, continuing at that time frame, so you, you, you basically did the gig for the summer and then came to New York at, at yeah. uh, almost, you're still 17, but almost 18 years old. Yeah, when the, when the gig ended, I remember Warren, who was very instrumental in me coming to New York, 
He didn't promise me any work or anything, like that, but he said, what are you going to do now that uh, the tour is over? And I said, well, I guess I'll go back and work around Indianapolis. He says, well, if that's all you're going to do, you might as well just go to New York and do that. Mm-hmm. He says, you've, you've met guys on this band, and they, they work with other bands, and some of them are contractors on weekend bands. And he says, you'll probably do just as well, if not better, just you know, starting out there. So I, I did. I, it really like a kind of a no-brainer. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, that sounds like a lot more fun. <laughs> wow, that's great. So Warren Covington had a big yeah. part of you getting there. At that time, I knew right. he would have ended up he, here. He literally anyway. uh, made me make the decision, in, in essence, which... Uh, was pretty, uh, you know, very thankful for. There was a lot of people who were always very encouraging, you know, and uh, for whatever reasons. And uh, but uh, a lot of nice people, you know. As you, you know, when you're starting out, everybody sees you as a. Uh, I don't know what exactly the perspective is, but as promising, let's say. Right. right. Uh, but of course, later on, that that. That uh, babysitting or whatever definitely goes away. <laughs> you're not so you're not so charming anymore, yeah. you know, because you're the real threat or whatever, you know. <laughs> That's great. So this is now we were talking about it before the interview. This is fall of 1963. Um, can you just share some of your memories about what New York was like to you in, in your eyes at that time? What do oh, you what do you remember about uh, what the town was like? Oh and, yeah, you know, I, I, of course I had never been to New York before. So my first night in town, guy says, uh, some of the guys said, "Well, we'll meet at Charlie's," and I didn't even know what Charlie's uh, was, but it was a famous hangout. It wasn't the original hangout that was apparently on Broadway and Fifty Second, but this was on. 52nd Street, right next to where the Roseland uh, ballroom was. And they said, we'll meet over there, and we'll go hear Louis Belson's band. And I'm thought, mm. I didn't even know who Louis Belson was. So we go over there, we meet, we go over to the Metropole and listen to Louis Belson's band, and it was just fantastic. It was like a who's who, you know, Jimmy Cleveland, uh, uh, John Bunch, or uh, George de Vivier, oh, wow. uh, yeah. Phil... Uh, Gene Quill, Selden Powell, Pepper Adams, you know, I didn't even know who these guys were. And Clyde Riesinger was the first trumpet player. Uh, I forget who else was there, but they were all, you know, to me it was just like I couldn't believe my ears. I never heard a band like that, and especially up close, you know, in the Metropole. Yeah. You'd literally stand in front of each player, you know, you can hear them. So I was so uh, overwhelmed by that, I had to find out who that lead trumpet player was, and I got a one to see if he would teach because... I was under the impression that you could learn how to do that <laughs> just by taking a lesson. <laughs> so I, I, got, I got, finally got his name and number, and I got in touch with him, and he was the nicest cat in the world. He, he did teach, and uh, he was really a big help to me in getting into uh, a lot of situations. Wow. You know, Broadway show, uh, nightclub. I worked at the Latin Quarter. By the time I was 19, I had a TV show, I had a Broadway show at various times, and and uh, a long, you know, semi-running steady gigs. And the Latin Quarter, I think I stayed there for about a year until I left for some reason, or other. I'm not sure why. Oh, I started working in the other nightclubs in town, mm. and that was really fun. Mm-hmm. That was a, that was a very thriving scene, which doesn't oh, really yeah. exist it's so much all. now. But not like, at all. you had the Copa, and uh, at that time and, there uh, was four or five of these things, and then I remember. 
going, uh, yeah, the Copa, the, my first sub at the Copa, man, that was exciting. And I go in there and Vinnie uh, <laughs> Powell uh, was in the back, we're in this hallway and, we're, and I'm warming up and being the, you know, a young uh, novice, so to speak, on this scene. I'm, I'm warming up ferociously and all this. And I never thought about this until the other day, you know, like, it's, it's like, Beanie Powell comes up and he says, you know, Snooky Young, he always warms up in a cup mute, real soft. Thought, <laughs> and then I realized he wasn't giving me a tip. <laughs> I was irritating the hell out of him. <laughs> Maybe it was a tip, but Benny was a perfect gentleman at all times, you know what I mean? And this hallway was very narrow and small, you know? And I'm like all nervous, you know, running, running up and down the horn like an idiot. So the, the, the uh, sub went great, uh, except at the end of the sub, then the, one of the managers or head guys there, a captain or whatever, comes up and asks to see my cabaret card. And I said, cabaret card. Uh, luckily, even then, I was able to come up with an answer. I said, oh, I left it at home. <laughs> then I had to go find out what a cabaret card was and go down and get one. But that was a little bit of a scary place there, as you probably heard. You yeah, know. yeah. Interesting. Funny <laughs> but stuff. But some great, great acts and great bands and lot, got to play with some great players there. I love that uh, your first night is with the uh, is hearing Louis Belson because you guys had such a connection then down the road where oh, you yeah. did so much stuff yeah. with him over the years. Clyde, you know? Clyde actually hooked me up on a little tour a few months later, I think it was, uh, with Louis and, and, and Pearl Bailey. And uh, I got to go out and play. Uh, and uh, Johnny Bella was playing lead trumpet. Mm. And uh, um, Was he living in New York at that point? Or he was yeah, still in- yeah, he was <laughs> still on, on the scene doing the craft music hall and all. He was a big-time player. Uh, and he sounded like it, too. And uh, I can't remember the trumpet player's name then. Ray, uh, his son's a drummer who just passed away recently, which I was mm. shocked to find out. Mm. Uh, but anyway, and uh, Don Rader. Was oh, wow. Yeah. And, and, and this was just a, it was like a fantasy, listen, just listening to these guys every night, you know. And Louis, uh, this right away, I, I thought, Man, this guy is the greatest leader in the world. He doesn't say anything, counts the tunes off, and uh, plays. And everybody plays, and that's it. Yeah. No mystery. <laughs> no dirty looks. I, I know I had the good fortune of uh, playing with Louie, with you, of course, playing lead trumpet. But oh, I, yeah? that was my the exact same reaction. Is like, what a great leader. He just lets, the, lets it speak for itself. And yeah. You know, if you, yeah. It's, it's sort of like a self-cleansing on. situation. If you're not making it, uh, you won't be back uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. So it just it took care of itself, you know, and he didn't have to say anything to anybody. Yeah. I heard Duke was like that, but in a different way. You know, he guys would leave the band because I guess they felt the draft or something from the other guys. Mm-hmm. But he would never actually apparently fire them or anything, oh, really? you know. Interesting. But this wasn't a steady thing like that anyway. But yeah. Sure was fun. Well, there's a lot of, I want, there's so many things, but I feel like talking to you, you get like just a wealth of information and great stories, and it's, this is terrific. I, I want to come back to some of that, but I also want to uh, shift a little bit over to, the, to, to your, the Broadway side of your career for a moment. And, um, you know, it's not always, uh, it's not always our favorite work, it might be fair to say, but, uh, but we're also extremely grateful for the steadiness of it, and, it's in a, and especially now, it's yeah. su- such an important part of the infrastructure of work here in New York for freelance players. 
But maybe you could talk about, um, I mean, I think the thing you're most associated with is the, the entire run of a chorus line. Yeah. Uh, a 15-year run, obviously that's like, a, yeah. has, it has its pluses and minuses, I'm sure. But maybe you could I just kind of share your thoughts about your time on Broadway. You're obviously still very active. You did the whole run of Hairspray. Uh, not, just got done with the nice work if you can get it. But maybe if you could talk a little bit about that and how you got into Broadway and how you've seen it shift over the years and just kind of an overview from your perspective. Well, I got into Broadway. Actually, my first Broadway show was because of Clyde Riesiger. He recommended for a floor, The Red Menace. That was Eliza Manley's first show too. And uh, I think she was 19 also. We were both Mm -hmm. 19. And uh, uh, that's when I realized that I was not really equipped or prepared to be a Broadway player because of the, uh, it was more like not the notes or the music, it was the atmosphere, the pressure and, you know, I don't know, something about it just kind of like made me kind of freak out a little bit, you know, mm. the simplest things seem to be hard to play and, and uh, so I realized that if I was going to be a, any kind of a decent player, I had to get more experience playing lead in more pressure kind of situations uh, because I didn't see a solo career for myself having had the pleasure of hearing Randy and Louis Olof and those guys who were sort of in my age group and hearing them play. And I said, man, forget that. These cats are, <laughs> these cats are in another world, you know. But uh, so the, the, this old trumpet player on Warren Cummings' man said, Learn how to play lead, you always work. Well, mm. there's some truth to that, I guess, in those days. Sure. But anyway, uh, so I decided that Broadway was not in my future. Uh, and somehow or other, I got a nightclub gig, you know, playing second trumpet or third trumpet or whatever. And then the leader calls me up one day and says, well, the first trumpet player is not coming back. Uh, I'm thinking about hiring so-and-so, and I said, okay, great, you know, and then a couple couple hours later, I decided, sounds like I better call this guy back and tell him I'm interested in playing lead, if, and and the wild thing is, he says, I was hoping you'd say that, that's what the guy said, hmm. he says, because that's what I wanted, but I wanted to hear it from you, so, you know, I put my foot in my mouth, and then, <laughs> and then I started out really, you know, it's sort of like you learn kind of situation where we were playing like in a what I considered a really pretty good quality gig, especially for me. Uh, playing with and and sometimes the acts would bring in their own lead trumpet players. Like that's where I got to work with Snooky Young, you know, and Ernie Royal, and and at one of the greats, Al Derisi, which a lot of people didn't know about, but Al was a he was one of the greats. Mm. He, he was kind of like Tony Bennett's lead trumpet player at that time, and so. I got to hear these guys play. It was like free lessons and, and getting paid at the same time, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that started me on the, the nightclub circuits. And pretty soon I had, I had uh, a, a situation at all the nightclubs where guys would, would the leaders would call me if, if, uh, to see if I was available to play lead, which if I was, I'd, I'd jump in there because that's, that's really all I wanted to do. And uh, you know, so I, I, I got these opportunities and, uh, to me, it was just all fun, you know. It wasn't really, 
it wasn't really that much of a pressure cooker like I felt playing that first Broadway show. It was like, wow, I'm playing some good charts with great players and everything is fun and, you know, for the most part. And a <laughs> <laughs> few, few uh, bumps in the road now and then. But, uh, uh, and I remember this uh, the big Broadway show contractor calling me, Morris Stanzik, asking me uh, to do a show. And I turned it down because I really didn't, you know, want to go back there. I didn't feel I was ready. And actually, I didn't really kind of need the work because uh, between doing the uh, uh, nightclubs and then starting to pick up a few gigs during the daytime, I, w I was very content with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I then one day, <laughs> you wake up and all the nightclub gigs are gone. And you look at your bank account and you say, and a guy, and I was summoning in a show that night. I remember the show, No No Nanette, Nanette, No No Nanette. And uh, the contractor asked me if I'd be interested in doing a show, the house contractor show called Over Here. I said, uh, nah, I don't think so. I went home the next day after looking at my bank account, I realized <laughs> I came back because I was doing a sub again. And I said, I, is that offer still available? He said, yes, so. That was the beginning of a long run of doing Broadway shows because it was a necessity. Mm -hmm. It was a necessity. Mm -hmm. And that particular show was fun because it was actually a big band musical on stage. And, uh, you know, not like being buried in a pit and feeling like, uh, you know, I don't know, hopeless or something. This thing was <laughs> kind of fun. It was a lot of interaction, interaction with the cast, parties. It was like... Just fun, you know. Mm -hmm. Good band swinging, you know. Uh, Harry DeVito, Jack mm. Gale, and uh, oh, nice. I don't yeah. remember all the uh, Harvey Estrin. There was a lot of great players, and, mm -hmm. and it was fun. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that closed. I did another show called uh, Man on the Moon with uh, that guy who was the leader of the Mamas and Papas. Phillips was his name. And this thing was so out, it was unbelievable. <laughs> that didn't last long. <laughs> then, I, then I get a call from Herb Harris about an off-Broadway show. And I'd heard through the grapevine that uh, somebody had recommended me. In fact, it was Larry, Larry Wilcox, the arranger. He recommended me for this gig. Well, you know, Herb had called uh, apparently every one of his ringer trumpet players that he worked with. Uh, apparently, he was a busy recording contractor. So... You know, he had Ernie Royal and uh, Ray Crisier and all these big names, but they all turned him down because it was an off-Broadway show. So I guess Larry Wilcox recommended me. I, I took the gig. He said, I'll give you, you know, five doubles or whatever it was. It's off-Broadway. It doesn't pay well. But he says, there's, there's not much chance of this thing going to Broadway. Well, of course, that was a, a chorus line. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the rest was history, you know. So that, that was uh, just... You know, pure dumb luck. Did the five doubles carry over when you got to Broadway? Well, you know, there's an interesting story about that. As uh, I guess Herb, after he saw what a horrible mistake he had made by telling me I could keep those five doubles if it goes to Broadway, came to me and he said, in all seriousness, he says, you know, I'm having some trouble with the payroll. I, I think I may have to take one, one double away. I think he said one. And, you know, I was such a cocky, independent kind of guy, I said, okay, fine, well, you, you can just get somebody else for this gig. And, and I wasn't kidding. I just I always had this negative reaction to anything that was, you know, uh, 
authority related uh, yeah <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> you know and and so then he leaves and he comes he came back in a couple hours says okay i worked it out you're fine everything's fine you know <laughs> so i guess i called his bluff luckily not really intending to it was just my gut you know reaction shooting from the hip which is not advisable if you want to stay in this business but i was lucky and uh, and herb later on you know i'll never forget this because later on when the show closed he was calling me for his sessions now and then, you know, and he had these big score productions, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I sort of jokingly, I go up to him, I said, hey, her, man, you know, that course line turned out to be a good gig, you know. And he smiled. I said, <laughs> you know, you get any more gigs like that, give me a call. <laughs> and he says to me, well, I only call young guys. <laughs> I was young when I started to get, you know, I, was, I think I was about 29 or something. <laughs> Oh, that's good stuff. It was funny. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the funny thing, you know, it's in, the, in the kind of a serious mode is like on Broadway, you know, the, the first trumpet, from my perspective, and I'm sure you would echo this, is had, there's so much pressure on the first trumpet yeah. and so yeah. much attention paid to it. And, and, and it's really not uh, uh, rewarded enough, I think, on a financial basis. Then they, they do have a lead trumpet premium in New York, but it's, yeah. it's, it's more of a token gesture a than, a, than, yeah. a, than a real a amount. Yeah. So the fact that... Whatever doubles you got were well deserved. I'm, yeah. I'm quite certain because that is a lot of uh, yeah. extra stress and pressure to deal with. Yeah, and the funny thing is, you know, when I worked in the nightclubs, I don't know who set it up because it wasn't a, it wasn't in the union contract thing. But the most of the leaders automatically would give me an extra, you know, fifty bucks a week or something, which was a big deal in those days mm. for playing lead. Mm-hmm. Un, un, uh, without asking, it was just like they. They kind of had some kind of idea that, that that was important or whatever for you know whatever reason, so that just but Broadway kind of like never really felt that way. I think they mm-hmm. always just sort of like everything had to be by the book and by. Uh, I said, well, those are minimums, man. You know, like <laughs> those are not maximums. It's like that famous Al Pacino story about a guy calling him for a gig and offering him some money, and and, and saying, well, how's that? Is that enough? He says. Al says, well, keep going. I'll tell you when it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> the inimitable Al Prasino yeah, had the yeah. way with words, for sure. Yeah, right? yeah. Classic. Well, let's talk a little bit about your, your studio side of your career, because that's certainly as, as prolific as, as any of the live playing that you've done. Yeah. But how did you, um, you know, I think you, you got into that very early on as well, but how did you view that as compared to the live work that you were doing. And, and I was also curious as to some of the players that might have been influential to you. I know you mentioned your colleagues like Louie and, and Randy and, yeah. and folks like that, but, but the generation previous to that, who were you well, listening to that you uh, oh, really this, admired? Yeah, that, talk about the greatest generation, you know, uh, you know, Bernie Glow and Ernie and, you know, Snooky and all those names that a lot of guys get tired of hearing about. But <laughs> you just can't say enough about them. Johnny Frost, Joe Ferranti, Dick Perry. These these guys, you know, they've been there and done that. And uh, there's a lot of history with all those guys. And, and just to get to be around them and work with them occasionally. I never, you know, I never had any delusions of grandeur. I was like, just, just, uh, just really... Um, a privilege to ever, you know, work with those guys because, you know, they were just uh, great players with great history, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they always turned out to be really nice cats, look funny and good time, you know, Ernie, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and uh, they lived up to their reputation playing wise. Uh, Snooky, man, you know, if you didn't dig that, you, you weren't listening, <laughs> you know. But uh, I don't know, I kind of got off the track there, but the, it was those guys were, but there was a transition, you know, like there always is in the music business. It's ongoing. It's like, you know, those guys had all those big time leaders that they worked for in those days. You still had all those big time arrangers in town, you know, like, uh, you know, Patrick Williams and, mm, oh, of and course, you know, yeah. Al Cohn was a big, a busy writer and uh, Tori Zito and Marion Evans and, you know, uh, a whole bunch of those guys. Billy Byers in yeah, that circle Billy of Byers, guys as well. For sure. Mm -hmm. And and these guys, these guys were, uh, you know, all their favorite players were of the their generation, which was like Bernie Glow, Johnny Frost, Doc Severson was still still uh, just ending his sideman career, I think, about that time in the 60s before he started working as a leader at uh, The Night Show. But mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the first sessions that I heard, not played at, but heard, was with Doc Severson and Bernie Glow and Clark Terry. And it was like the sound is still rings in my ears like, you don't hear, you just don't hear that, you know, hardly anywhere because they, they played, they played differently. They were coming from more of a, maybe a classical bass sound or background, but they were swingers. Of course, Clark was the ultimate swinger. Yeah, of course. But uh, yeah, it, they were a big influence. They set, they set a really incredible standard, uh, which, you know, thankfully it was easier to get into the recording business later on because because uh, it didn't require the same skills. You didn't have to be a virtuoso. Uh, you know, the recording techniques became different, the punching in, the tracks, this and that and the other. Well, it became like, I, I, I never, um, very seldom felt uh, uptight or uh, nervous on a record date as I would say playing a Broadway show. It was just more relaxed, and the people that you were working for, of course, they're, if they're making a record, they want it to be good. And of course, they understood apparently the basic philosophy of, you know, be nice to musicians, treat them good, have a good time, and and everybody makes happy and good music together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was actually a pretty good scene. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's a lot to be said for that, right? It's like yeah. making the musicians feel comfortable. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, and happy workplace, so, even in the office. So, <laughs> so huge. Um, would you say at that time, say in the '70s, was there a was there a, a, a real di dividing line between uh, studio work and show playing, or was it kind of like a bit like it is now? It seems to cross. You, you kind of do everything uh, well, if it's if you can, you know. Yeah, some guys, some of the busy big name cats adamantly uh, kind of like refused to do Broadway uh, and I can't and I think it was you know financially speaking they didn't need it mm -hmm. it wasn't an issue some guys did I learned uh, at, at my point that uh, Broadway made a nice <laughs> base so to speak and uh, they were very uh, of course they were very good to me very lenient let me off any time as much as I wanted to be and and so the studio thing, I had the two things to play off of each other. If the studio thing was irritating me, I could play my show and that was fine. Or if that got to be, uh, uh, get on my nerves, I knew I could do, I had the studio thing going. So it was a, it was, for me personally, it was a good balance. Uh, I didn't have all my eggs in one basket and it was kind of a, 
a good scene. You know, mm -hmm. I was able to enjoy both things without having to feel feel that my life was on the line all the time. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I know I learned from you, and I think many others have. But yeah, exactly what you just said: not keeping all your eggs in one basket. Because yeah. that's especially in this business can be a yeah. danger, dangerous approach. Exactly right. I wanted to talk about. Uh, I mean, there's so many qualities of your plan that I'm a huge fan of, as we all are here in New York. But your concept of sound to me is something that's remarkable in your playing. And, yeah. and to me, the sound and feel, uh, the, those two things uh, are, are really trademark uh, qualities in your, in your great playing. Um, I want to talk about your role as a lead player in the big bands that you've worked with, in particular um, Bob Mincer and Louis Belson. But I was curious, before we jump into that, if, if you had some place that that concept of sound originated from or was it a, an amalgam of hearing all these great players that you just mentioned or how you developed your concept of sound and and feel as well yeah well you know funny thing is mike i, I somebody called me uh, a couple of weeks ago about giving a lesson and i said well i don't really teach and i was thinking about it just the other day you know it's hard to first of all there's a lot of really good musicians out there and great trumpet players, all the technique and chops in the world and good, decent sounds, good, decent feel, this and that and the other. But my two strongest attributes apparently would be my sound and my feel, right? So those are the two things you can't really teach. Mm -hmm. How do you teach mm -hmm. that? I mean, you know, and uh, as far as how do you develop it, I, I couldn't tell you either except for the fact that, you know, just by having enthusiast, enthusiastic uh ear for listening to good music when I was a kid, you know, it didn't seem like a mystery to me uh, hearing these swinging bands, you know, then when I try to emulate it, uh, uh, practicing or playing with a, a band, uh, it, it was just a matter of just, you know, playing with a good feel, the sound kind of just takes care of itself, you know, your inner ear, ear. I mean, I see guys switching instruments and mouthpieces all the time, but basically you always get back to who you are. And uh, it's just the luck of the draw, I guess. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I would imagine hearing, getting that you were, you're a great musician, so you're you're intuitive and you're listening to what's going on around you. I imagine being around those players, yeah. like Doc and and Bernie and Ernie, and the, the guys that you were fortunate to hear had had a well, had to would, be extremely helpful. Absolutely, and also mainly keenly when I would try to pick up on more than anything else was the uh, approaches they used uh, with their embouchures. Uh, that was always interesting to me because I never had really what I considered a great embouchure. And uh, I tried changing it once and, and, and going with it. I went with it for a few years. And then a few years later, I said, eh, <laughs> went back to the original. I decided, well, I don't care how it looks. I'm just going to go with what feels good. <laughs> the looks thing wasn't working. <laughs> Because I noticed that, you know, Snooky and Bernie and all these guys, they had these, like, perfect-looking embouchures, like textbook, right? In the, you know, and I thought, well, I'll never be that good because I could never, my teeth and my embouchure just won't work like that, you know? So uh, I would always ask guys like Danny Stiles, who was another great player, and how they, how they set their embouchure when they played, you know? In other words, like, Danny would say he would put the mouthpiece 
Honest shops didn't make his armatures. Some people will make their armatures, but the shop, you know, so you you kind of like just like pick, pick up these bits and pieces. Johnny Bellow said he didn't practice extensively in the upper register. He would just warm up to it. You know, and you take these little gems and little bits of knowledge and you kind of piece them together. Doc Simonson, I, I had the privilege of hanging out with him one day for an hour or two uh, in this trailer, you know, at a, at a concert. It was at Cleveland's ballpark. Mm. And I was working with Tony Bennett, and he was on the bill doing his thing. And we were all playing with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra. So anyway, uh, it was a rain delay or something, and I'm, and, and I'm hanging out inadvertently with him in the same trailer. And I noticed how he would, we would chat, and then he'd pick up his horn, and he'd do a few minutes of drills and all that. And uh, then I started to realize uh, later on, put, putting this all together, that that was the ultimate way to practice and to be able to keep practicing without uh, blowing your chops out. Some guys think practicing, you got to sit down for an hour and just keep playing etudes. I, I never had much success at that except just getting frustrated and sounding like crap and getting tired. <laughs> this is not working out. <laughs> There's got to be a better way. Then I discovered the concept of resting. <laughs> Made so, it a lot easier. So true. Yeah. God, rest you know. is like massively important for yeah, well, I guess weightlifters weightlifters know that. They, yeah. they don't go yeah. into the gym and just keep lifting a weight until they can't move, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I try to impart that to other guys when they ask me and uh, they don't have the patience to rest. Mm. You know, they pick up yeah. the some get away with it and some don't. But if it's not working for you, then you got to look for something else. Yeah. Um, well, continuing on our path with, with that idea, can you talk a little bit about um, your approach and, and, and maybe just some of your favorite uh, recollections of, of all the great big band playing that you've done? We've mentioned some of the things early in your career, but, but of late, um, you've been working with uh, David Berger's great band. You've worked with yeah. David Liebman. You've done, I know yeah. you've done a, quite a bit of recording with him. Um, and of course, the great Bob Mincer, who you've been associated right. with. Uh, I believe you were a charter member of the band, I think. Yeah. Um, so maybe you could talk about just, I know it's kind of like you just said, the feel thing is an elusive thing. You can't really yeah. teach that and describe it, but maybe talk about your thoughts about playing uh, in, in these great bands. Yeah. Well, I remember studying with this one particular teacher who wasn't the swingingest player, but he, he could swing. But his approach to music was that all music is rhythmic and, and swings, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's classical or whatever, there's, you should have some kind of inner pulse going on. Well, uh, my brain can't handle that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, in any, <laughs> any event, it does make sense. So whether you're playing rock, Latin, jazz, whatever, uh, if you got a good feel and say you're a good swing player uh, and you're playing... Uh, more of an even eighth note feel, then of course common sense tells you that you can't play it with a swing feel, but you play with an even even eighth note feel, but it's still supposed to swing in its own even eighth note thing, you know. So yeah, swing yeah. is swinging is not just an old time term. It's a way that that you feel and motivate your the uh, playing your your impulse to play. Basically, everything should have a, a nice swing to it, you right, know? Right, exactly. Making uh, the music feel good, yeah. If you can't play even eighth notes, then that's a problem, you know? <laughs> but if you do play them and you can't, can't play them without a, without a swing fill, that's a problem. But if you play them with too much of a swing 
old-time swing fiddle, that's no good either. Every, every, everything has its own identity. I mean, I played in a lot of Latin recordings, tons of them, and Latin bands, and I'll be the first one to tell you, that's hard to, to really cop something that people grow up with. Mm -hmm. It's not that easy, you yeah, know, yeah. to really, you know, and believe me, I, I used to get very frustrated because it was always important to really feel good about what I was playing, but it was hard. It was hard. It, there, there, uh, to this day, I'm still trying to figure out where the bass player is, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like... I know exactly what and, you mean. And it's yeah. just, uh, these Latin bands, they absolutely amaze me. Yeah. Man, they're like off to the races, man. They got this, this thing down. I wish... That's one thing that I've never really felt comfortable doing, but at least I had the common sense to know that I didn't feel comfortable doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to play with some great, on some great, uh, you know, Latin records with uh, some great players, but uh, it didn't make me a great Latin player. Yeah, I, mean, I, I could sort of just simulate, but yeah, I could totally. But Minster's band is it, it's that's a different thing. Yeah, you, as we know, that's not uh, uh, you know flat out swing, but it is swing. Right, it's very much into a pulse and a, a feeling. Well, uh, the Latin aside, that you certainly uh, found your niche as being the uh, lead trumpet player in a big band, because I know firsthand, having sat in front of you on Bob's band for so many years, it's like well, I appreciate you, that. You, you really uh, bring something that. to the table that's very uh, special. Now, and, if I could just solo like you, then I'd have something. <laughs> <laughs> You're too kind. Well, let's. Uh, I just want to throw out a couple of names because uh, they're they're so iconic in the in the music world. Um, but you've been associated with both of them, but maybe you could just share a couple thoughts. The first one would be uh, the great producer, Quincy Jones. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't have a lot to do with him, obviously, because I didn't live in L.A. I only had a few. I bumped uh, up against him a couple of times, and one was a, a gig that uh, Dave Berger got me on. They took a handful of us to Paris for a week, do this, do this big tribute to Quincy Jones, and he was actually going to conduct it, uh, Quincy, but he wasn't at the first few rehearsals. And I remember being, you know, you know, you hear all these stories about, well, he didn't really write that, or he didn't do this. But let me tell you, my first time knowledge is this cat is good, <laughs> real good. He knows what he's doing. We were we were doing this big production number, you know, one of those Duke Ellington things. I forget the name of it, Harlem or something like that. You know, mm -hmm. one of those things that go on and on. It's fairly involved. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were rehearsing it with the uh, French musicians who were quite good, especially the strings. They were awesome. Anyway, so after two or three days of rehearsal, then Quincy comes to rehearsal and Dave's saying, well, I'm not sure how this is going to go. I don't know if Quincy knows how to conduct this number or, or whatever. We were just giving a, get, getting a heads up, you know, and be, be understanding. Well, let me tell you, man, he just flew right through it. He knew everything about it. I don't know if he did homework on it or whatever, but uh, it was very impressive, mm. you know. I said, well, there's one story about Quincy I know for a fact. This cat knows how to, <laughs> he knows what he's doing, mm -hmm. you know. Mm. And he was a really nice cat. And uh, he was very complimentary. And, of course, you know, any compliments from Quincy, it's like, you know, God or something. You know? <laughs> Can't let it go to your head because, you know. But, and I know uh, Brian Pareshi was on the gig, you know. And, and Brian and I were talking about when, when Quincy shows up, you know. We, we got to be cool. And Brian says to me, the greatest advice I'd ever heard. He says, 
Well, we know we're not going to impress him. He's worked with the greatest. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, yeah, let's get that out of the way. That ain't going to (laughs) happen. I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was shortly after that we were doing an OJ's gig, and it was with it was Oprah was the uh, it was her event, and, oh, but yeah. it was a tribute to Quincy. Oh yeah. And yeah. I remember we were standing around, and you said, "Hey guys, come on, let me I'll introduce you to Quincy." So I was thinking, "Wow, how's this? Okay, awesome. I, I've never met Quincy. It's going to be great." And you walked up to him, and he was like, "Hey Bob, how you doing?" And he's like, "Happy to see you." And you, and, and you were, he was super kind to all of us. But that's anyway, the, that's the way he is. Yeah. He obviously you obviously made a great impression. Impression on him, so I think I think Brian might have uh, spoke too soon. I think he did impress him. Well, and we we went out to L.A. a couple of times and did some gigs that uh, he got us. Also, uh, one was playing the first uh, the opening you know night of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, where they they have a big party for all their backers and you know a concert and all that. And Quincy got us on that. And uh, then another gig we flew out to do once was a a party for um, Barry Gordy's, I don't know if it was his daughter getting married or his partner's daughter. I never did Mm. get that straight. (laughs) (laughs) But Quincy was there. (laughs) He got us the gig. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he just, he he came to the club to hear us. You know, it just like, I don't know. struck me as like you can see why people would want him to be your producer right because he just brings good vibe to the gig you know yeah. like uh, there's no hidden agendas at least the way he puts it out there it's like just it's all happiness love making good music and, oh we, we were doing this thing once for <laughs> bill cosby uh and quincy was conducting the band down at the chelsea pier and he uh he could count on just the way he counted off a tune made you want to play it. It was weird <laughs> like that, you know. He brought so much enthusiasm. So anyway, yeah, he has some some uh, kind of career. Of, of, you know, I remember when they were saying he was a sellout because he started doing uh, Michael Jackson all that. Like, oh my give gosh, give me a break. Yeah, music is music, man. It's, he's one of, one of the great careers in the history of music. <laughs> yeah, absolutely un- un- unbelievable. Unbelievable well, is right. The other name I wanted to mention, which is completely different, also a very big star, but you. Uh, I've had a, a lengthy association with her as, uh, as Barbara Streisand. Yeah. Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, uh, next. Uh, no, but no, no, she was, she was uh, I have to say, first of all, she lives up to her reputation as a singer, firstly, and, and the Bill Ross, the conductor, needs to say, uh, great cat, perfect guy for the job, knows how to handle her and us. <laughs> Good sense of humor. He put up with me. <laughs> and uh, the music was on a very high level. Uh, we didn't really have much contact with her. You know, a couple of times I, I said hello to her or whatever, and she, she didn't respond. You know, so that was good. <laughs> But I, I have nothing but good things to say about it because she she didn't bug us, she didn't turn on us, or any weird stories you might think would happen, you know. But she was a real pro and she took care of business. That's that's about all I can say about that because uh, it was a great gig, probably the best gig I've ever had in terms of being paid to play first trumpet. Uh, it's got to be one of the all-time great sideman gigs for mm-hmm. a non. Mm-hmm you know, 
situation, except like maybe when you were playing with the Rolling Stones or something like that. But mm. uh, but as for a sideman just playing in an orchestra, it couldn't get any better than that monetarily. And musically, you know, it was just, you know, you heard those arrangements. It's like uh, just music to the ears, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You hear those big string sections playing those beautiful arrangements. And, you know, I, I enjoyed it. It was work. It wasn't a vacation. Uh, you know, you always think about, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there and I'm going to have a good time. Well, I had enough to play and it wasn't a lot, but I had just enough to play that I had to spend my free time most of the time trying to keep my chops up because the gig itself wasn't enough playing to keep the chops up. But yet I had enough spots in the music, you know, where you had to play. Mm-hmm. So since... And I figured, well, you know, they're paying me to do this, so I, I guess I better be able to keep on target here. <laughs> well, I wanted to uh, ask you about one other experience, and I mentioned it in the uh, in the intro, but uh, I know you played on the uh, Chick Corea's uh, Le- the Leprechaun yeah. CD. Or back then, it was an LP. Right. Um, I was just curious if you had any recollections of that. I'm such a I'm a big Chick fan, of course, as yeah. we all, as we all are. But I uh, wondered if you had any memories about that uh, well, particular I, record date. I remember that. And I remember the studio, uh, the Electric Lady. Mm. Uh, Jimi Hendrix apparently was the originator of that place or owner initially. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember one thing from a from a technical standpoint. It was the first uh, recording to be totally Dolby'd. Mm. And that, in those days and age, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. But if, as you listen to that record, even on the vinyl, it's amazingly clear, you know. Uh, but also, then, to get onto the plane, Chick Corea, Steve Gadd, uh, Anthony Jackson, and um, uh, the upright bass player, Eddie Gomez. Mm. I'm listening to these guys play, and I'm saying, my God. <laughs> it's just absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, mind-boggling. Such genius. What the hell are they doing? How are they doing it? And they were they were great. You know, our 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 roles in that were you know not that big of a deal, but uh, of course we had to play. You know, and there was it was a good. If I remember right, it was pretty good. You know, did Chick do the uh, his own? own I think Charleston? he did. I yeah. think he did. Yes, mm-hmm. I think he did. Uh, and uh, well, it was just it was an amazing experience, you know. The guy's a genius, let's face it. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> question. Get around that. Yeah, no question. Well, as we kind of wind down, I wanted to just uh, have you offer. This is somewhat of a general question, but you were here in New York in, in such a fruitful period, and it's obviously changed dramatically from what it is now. Yeah, um, I'm sure you had the same experience when you were. You know, first getting to New York, probably the generations before you were saying, wow, you should have been here back when. Yeah. And now the younger players are hearing that from us. And, and uh, but I was just curious as to you, how you look at New York now and, and the change that it's gone through, how you just kind of your overview of the music business uh, in your yeah. career and then and perhaps where it's going in the future. Yeah. Well, I think from a musical standpoint and from, a, you know, a, yeah, a musical standpoint, musical level, I think the the level has always been high and still is. From a work standpoint, that's a whole other ball game, you know, because like that has been like a steady graph down, you know, due to electronics and recordings, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So that's that's the sad part, but uh, there's still 
the, the, the level of players are still coming and it's still there. And they, it's amazing how good all these young guys are. They're just absolutely stupendous. And, uh, you know, uh, I, somehow or other they make their way. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they do it, you know. Mm -hmm. It's like watching a deer in the backyard or something. <laughs> they managed to survive in the wintertime. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, but, you know, I'd, I'd say, yeah, playing-wise, of course, what the guys did when I first came to town was pretty awesome and, and a little different. And, uh, but even the mantra then or, or whatever was like, well, you should have heard it before that, you know. <laughs> so I think since the 30s or 40s, you know, there was, I guess there was a time when all, even the radio stations had orchestras, you know, so that, that whole thing of employment, one thing I say about these, these older studio musicians that used to, uh, in fact, uh, I worked with two of them in Chorus Line, I failed to mention this guy, Al, Al Montliano and Jimmy Morielli, two trumpet players, Al was on staff at ABC when he was 19, mm. and was there for about 10 or 15 years, and and Jimmy Morielli was on staff at ABC for 25 years. And Jimmy used to say, I've had two jobs in my life, ABC <laughs> and Chorus Line. And the guys were both amazing, amazingly well-rounded musicians, you know. Uh, Jimmy, uh, you know, they, they, they could play classical, club dates, jazz, blah, 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 you know, uh, lead. Uh, Jimmy Morielli was one of the guys who act, most people didn't realize he was playing a lot of the lead along with Victor on the uh, Dick Cavett show, mm. but a very good player and uh, a piano major from Juilliard. That's it. Oh, really? Even wow. though trumpet was his instrument. And he could sing opera. And, you know, it was just like those kind of guys in those days, some seriously well-rounded dudes, man, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Louis was kind of like that, although he didn't, you know, practice it that way that much. But Solov had that that all-encompassing, uh, you know, kind of uh, background, mm -hmm. you know, classical jazz and all that. Uh, he didn't, he didn't, you know, participate maybe in classical music that much. But I know that he knew what it was all about and what to do with it, you know, because mm -hmm. he had that background. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was, he was a piece of work, man. He was beautiful. <laughs> Well, speaking of a piece of work, I've never ended an interview this way, but you are one of the all-time characters in the New York scene, and I mean that in the most positive and uh, funny way possible. If you don't mind, if we can just go over a few classic Bob Milliken-isms, uh, if you would. And I, I was hoping we could get your take on him. And, and we, I was talking to some guys over the weekend, and I was telling them we were doing this interview, and they were like, you know, some of the stuff Bob says, only Bob could get away with that. If we said that, we, so I'd like to lead off with the one, and, and I wasn't there, so I'm going to probably say it incorrectly, and you can correct me, but there was something where it was on a show, and the conductor said there was a couple of crack notes in the trumpet section for everybody, and the, it, you could tell it better, but the conductor says, it's unacceptable, the amount of, and, and your response was... Well, no, he was, <laughs> he was actually pretty nice about it, you know, because, you know, from, you know, uh, from opening, uh, from the, you know, the break-in period and opening night and all that, we were doing a really, uh, you know, flawless job because you know what, you know, you want to. Yeah. And um, uh, I remember the show, Showboat. And, uh, and so then after a few months goes by, he calls me and the other trumpet player in and he says, guys, you know, I love you guys, but uh, I'm starting to hear, you know, a little, just 
little too many little cacks. He said, <laughs> not, not bad mistakes or anything like that, you know, just little, little cacks and all that. And I'm looking at him like, oh, man, is this guy serious or what? You know, so when he finishes all that, I said, well, how many mistakes are we allowed? <laughs> and he's, he looks at me, he says, two. I said, is that two per number or is that two per show? He says, no, two a week. <laughs> and I'm looking and I said, man. You know, I can make two on the downbeat. What do you put me on? <laughs> so after I come back from the break and we were getting ready to play the evening show, he looks over at me and says, Bob, forget everything I said. I think I had him worried or something, you know. <laughs> Another classic was uh, uh, we were doing uh, a tour with Bob Mincer's band uh, a few years back, and we were all driving in the Midwest, and it was in February. Yeah. So a challenging time to be driving around. Yeah, and, really. uh, But we all, of course, loved Bob's music so much that we'd uh, do anything for him. And we did, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and I just remember you, Bob was rehearsing, and we were talking about driving in here, and then it had obviously tipped the scale where you had to make a comment, and you looked up, and it was quiet for a second, and you go, hey, Bob. I'm doing this gig for the money. <laughs> Which, of course, for those of you who don't know, big band work tends to pay less, but the music yeah. is more uh, rewarding and fulfilling. And I'll never forget yeah. Vincent's expression. He yeah. just looked for a second. Yeah, like, what and then he started cracking it up. But it was another classic yeah. Millican line. Yeah, he, he, yeah. I remember the look on his face like, what? <laughs> What's this cat saying, you know? That was great. And another one that comes to mind is uh, I happened to be subbing for uh, Birch Johnson, great trombone player here in New York, and one of my favorite players. And he did the, the run with you at Hairspray. Yeah. And for some reason, which rarely happens, and we're all horrified when it does, and it's a lot of tension, uh, you were stuck in traffic that day or stuck in oh, the yeah. tunnel, and it was really late. And uh, John Miller, who's a very important contractor and very influential guy in the business, uh, they had called him and he came down. Yeah. And yeah. so I was kind I of trying that. to play a couple of trumpet parts because I was subbing for yeah. Birch that day. And I'm, I'm all, my stomach's turning because yeah. John's sitting next yeah. to me and I'm like all there. And you just walked in, you had all your stuff and you just looked over and you said, oh, hey, John, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, right. And the thing that was amazing about it was John started laughing. He was yeah. just like, Okay, <laughs> the irony of that is, and this is what was what was kind of funny and kind of you know embarrassing was, he literally had just called me like either the day before or something to book me for a couple of sessions, and so as I'm driving into town after I got this call from Clint, like where are you? Because I'd actually just forgot there was a gig that night because I had flown back from Germany or Vienna or something, and kept thinking that Monday night was off or something. There was some kind of weird anomaly mm, in the schedule mm -hmm. and it wasn't off. And anyway, so as I'm driving down, I'm thinking, man, he's going to like not only fire me for the gig, he's going to cancel those two record dates, <laughs> which seemed to be more important to me, you know, how you think in this business, you know. But he was totally cool, man. I, I, and I said, listen, man, I said, I didn't say anything to you that night. He says, I figured you'd heard enough bullshit. He says, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I saw him the other day. He's, he actually invited me to come to his place since I was going to be up there, you know. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know. Well, and we'll close out with a, like, on the hairspray theme. You remember the show, 
Hairspray had a, a six-minute break before the intermission. Oh, yeah. Um, and then there would be, there'd be a, a six-minute break, and then there'd be one more tune to play, and then there would be the intermission. Um, so evidently, that particular day, Bob forgot that we were on the six-minute portion well, and yeah. that the show was still going. Exactly. So the dialogue was going on stage. Um, so Bob went out of the pit that we would all leave the pit during those six minutes, and Bob went back in thinking it was the intermission and decided to go into his warm-up, which is also a trademark uh, of yours. Is your, yeah. uh, is in phenomenally interesting and effective warm-up. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I remember you cut laced right into the warm-up. Yeah. <laughs> Not too bad, but I'm playing up to like a high <laughs> B above the staff, you know, and trying to get a sound going and everything. And then all of a sudden in the background, I hear voices. I thought, well, why would they be rehearsing during the intermission, you know, on stage? Then I realized... The friggin' show was still going on. <laughs> you know, it, I, I, it's really Birch's fault, you know, because Birch and I used to jump up to go to the bathroom. We wanted to get there before the girls got there. We used to tell them that was only for the men, you know. <laughs> Those stupid situations. <laughs> oh, man. Well, as you can see, I can sit here for the rest of the day and yeah. tell great Bob Millican stories. I got but, uh, one last though. One please, last. I just please. Wanna, and this this has to do with Tony Bennett and the great John Bunch, piano player, who, who, for some bizarre reason, took a liking to me at a very early age, and, and he was conducting for Tony, and he had like a string of gigs coming up where they needed a lead trumpet player, and he asked me to do them. So, and, and the first one, I think, was that thing in Cleveland where Doc was there and Sarah Vaughn, you know, like, talk about a heavy scene, like, was wow, you know. And I'm like, what, 21 or two years old or something. And anyway, uh, I'm warming up on the bandstand, you know, and here's these guys like Bernie Adelstein, first trumpet in this, you know, <laughs> all these guys. And of course, I'm doing my, my typical warm up, you know, I, I don't even think about what, how crappy it sounds because it, I'm used to it, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, but John Bunch, uh, John Bunch told me a, a, a few months later on, he says, when Tony and I heard you warming up, we thought we had made the biggest mistakes of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good ploy because then by the time I got, I played the show that they were so relieved, they must have thought it was the greatest, you know. <laughs> That was a good one. A great story. Well, yeah. you, you are one of the greatest, and, uh, and you've given so much to the scene here in New York well, and, and uh, the, on, on every level as a person and as a, certainly as a player, no question about it. And, uh, and on, on behalf of all brass players and musicians, thank you for uh, that. And, and most of all, thanks for coming over today and, uh, and making this such a great day. And uh, the interview is fantastic. Thank you for, yeah. for taking the time out, Bob. My pleasure. An honor, an honor to be asked. Well, thanks, Bob. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate you checking us out today. We'll see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.